Damn it, Nick. I love being on here with you guys, Nick and Joe. I really appreciate it. Literally too long didn't read. TLDR, you guys are awesome. Joe, there have been some times, I mean, I'm excited for every interview that we do on this show. I genuinely am. Um, of course, we just had Kyle Starks on recently talking about Peacemaker Trichard and a couple other stories that he did that I really enjoy. Um, and of course, the new Boom st- uh, story that he's got coming out. And I know you've been excited. We've had Chip Zdarsky on before because Daredevil and, and whatnot. But I got to say, as much as we've had this guest on before, I don't think I've ever been so excited for an interview and that's not lip service because the character that we're going to be talking about a lot today is one of my favorites and objectively in my opinion one of the best comic book characters there are out there joe who are we talking to today and what the fuck are we talking about so i have uh, a tendency to uh, uh, mispronounce things people's names (laughs) um i don't want to end up in the rumpus room again but today i believe now now this name i'll get correctly we are welcoming back for a second time on our program uh cy spurrier and we're going to be talking about now this is where i'm probably gonna fuck shit up uh is it constantine or constantine mm. constantine rhymes with swine that's correct there we go baby he's a pig of a man he's a swine constantine. <laughs> that's a fair way to put it i've thought about that like where it's like you know this is how it's supposed to be said i know like neil gaiman says it that way too and i know when you watch the sandman he says constantine i gotta work on it i just i, I, I as much as i love the character i say his fucking name wrong but yes Cy. <laughs> Ty is back on Hellblazer. John Constantine Hellblazer, Dead in America. It's going to be a nine-issue series, 28 pages of pop, so a little bit bigger than what you're used to, starting on January 16th. Ty, how you doing? Very good. All the better for seeing you both again and hearing your dulcet tones. It's funny, <laughs> I, was, uh, I checked out the beginning of the last one of these we did just to sort of remind myself of the vibe and the buzz. And my God, I sounded so exciting and excited compared to who I am today. I think, like, you know, we're recording this end of the fucking year. It's been a long year. It's been a big few years for everybody, right? There's, in my household, children and too much work. And we're right before the holidays, which means in publishing, everything goes nuts because everybody's expecting to go home for a couple of weeks, which means all those deadlines get bunched up. So you find me in a a sort of weird binary condition of simultaneously being on fire and screaming, but also just having nothing left in the tank. So if I sound like a morose, (laughs) broken (laughs) shadow of my former self, that's why. Uh, And I apologize to any listeners that I don't have the same energy (laughs) that I may have had last time we chatted. But is it it too early for a pint? (laughs) <laughs> it is so oh god i'm already three in mate <laughs> <laughs> well honestly it's appropriate though for the character that we're talking about today mm-hmm. um but also just a reminder everybody if you go back and li- if you haven't listened to that conversation we had Simon before it was for step by bloody step which That's we right. absolutely love that is in collected edition i don't know if there if you can still go and wrangle one but i highly recommend go and checking that out we talk about uh, a good story in and of itself, but this is also that was also a wild experience that you can only really get in comics. Um, of course, damn them all, which I've talked about on this show quite a bit recently, which we'll get to at some point, I'm sure. Uncanny Spider-Man, which is uh, an interesting character for you. I, obviously, you've been doing a great job with it, but interesting that you're writing him 
and you're writing Constantine, where they're kind of like similar area, but opposite ends of the spectrum. Of course, then we got Coda, and also you're doing The Flash. But let's get to some of this. Uh, yeah, bu busy fucking man. It's My not goodness. a small amount of work, is it? There's a reason <laughs> that I'm such a chewed up bit of gristle. <laughs> and then he's, he's three pints in already. <laughs> yep, there you go. I hope you're three pints in when you're writing all this Constantine stuff. It's going to make it even more kick-ass. <laughs> but with... um. With this character now, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, like you're you're not you weren't like big into superheroes and stuff like that going you're uh, growing up. But obviously, Constantine's not that. I mean, he's he's anything but that. As much as people like to lump lump him in with them, sometimes it's funny. But I'm curious, what was your relationship with this bastard uh, growing up as a reader? It's a, I mean, I, I sort of didn't have one. I suppose is the honest answer. I sort of mm -hmm. I didn't pick up what you would recognize as a sort of uh, uh, in inverted commas, mature comic until I was probably 16 or 17. And that was the, the gateway drug that led me into 2000 AD and Judge Dredd and all of that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, which, to the uninitiated, uh, irrespective of the stories, is very much defined by a, a sort of um, countercultural bloody-minded subversiveness where what you see is absolutely not what you get and you have to, to sort of assume that nobody is a reliable narrator i mean judge dread's a great example you, you read judge dread every week week in week out and there's still plenty of people who think he's the hero he's not mm -hmm. he's a fascist you know spoiler alert he's a fascist <laughs> but that's an interesting story to tell and and you can either take these things at face value or you can think a little deeper about them and, and get more out of it. And, and to jump forward a little bit, Constantine is a really great example of that because as we know, as a result of him going away for a little while and reappearing in the DCU, there are people who just take it literally. He's a wizard who walks around with fire coming out of his hands, who saves the day, like he's a hero. And that's fine. That's a, an archetype that works in that context. That is not the character as I know him, as I, as I, it's, I hesitate to say as I love him because you can't really love a character like that. But as I as I love who he is, or how he exists in these stories, um, I guess I probably didn't encounter him until. Oh, that's interesting. Would it have been Garth or would it have been Saga of the Swamp Thing? Huh. Probably Saga. I think I probably went 2000 AD equals Alan Moore equals Watchmen and V and Saga and bumped into this character. And because at that time I was also very into Preacher, I probably followed Garth's name off to the, the Hellblazer of it all in that direction. And then sort of filled in the gaps, did the Delano run, jumped ahead to some of the, the more recent writers that I'm very into, like Mike Carey and Andy Diggle and all of that sort of stuff. So, so mm -hmm. just sort of quickly became quite obsessed by this nuanced complicated character who exists in a very i don't know british middle state the sort of liminal zone between selfishness and selflessness and heroism and just being a bit of a cunt and you're never quite sure whether he's really on the side of the angels or he's just on his own side and dancing between the raindrops and i think that's a, a character trope that fits quite nicely into the sort of British psychology, the kind of faded, disappointed imperial hangover that we, we all grow up with. Uh, what interests me, what fascinates me is that it translates 
relatively successfully to the American readership, where like, you know, if you're being disgustingly generalizing and you're sort of viewing America through these sort of rose-tinted glasses, you would think it's all optimistic and everything's about opportunity and freedom and liberty and all the rest of it. And characters like John should not work. They're too cynical, they're too bleak, they're too awkward and um, atypical and just frankly not very nice. <laughs> and that shouldn't work mm -hmm. in American literature. But he clearly does. He clearly he clearly gets his claws into enough minds that people sort of really celebrate that archetype. So as you know, I was fucked off, royally fucked off when my, my run on Hellblazer ran to its conclusion a few years back and we made no secret of the fact that we had more stories to tell people seem to really love it um we've just kept badgering our editors basically and i, I think <laughs> this is a broader conversation and p.s i'm aware that i'm waffling and you should be too so do jump in and say shut the fuck up <laughs> no keep going no <laughs> the, the interesting thing about that is at the time because i was coming off the dreaming uh, to go into hellblazer and, and it's all sort of in quite a nebulous kind of way tied through the lens of the Sandman universe stuff. That was like our, our entry way into right. this universe without necessarily having to rely on too much of the old continuity. Um, as a result of all that, I had hung out a little bit with Neil in, in New Orleans before all of this. And he said something that, that's always stayed with me, and it's that the modern mentality of how one gauges the success or otherwise of a comic book focuses very tightly on monthly sales and it sort of has to because we're all trained to think about the direct market and, and the distribution network and all of that stuff but his view was when it first came out sandman wasn't like a massive you know, it didn't change anybody's lives overnight and yet it has sat on a shelf for what 30 years mm -hmm. and just kept trickling away and he's like Sure, it would be nice if your monthly book sold gangbusters, but it's so much more important to think of it in terms of an artifact, a story that has a beginning and an end that will sit on a shelf somewhere and just keep telling. And I suppose, not to put words into my editor's mouths, but I suppose that when those two trades, the Hellblazer trades that Aaron and I did, have been sitting on a shelf now for a few years, somebody somewhere was like, well, you know what? <laughs> these are actually earning a bit of money and we, we can finish it and maybe we can collect it all into one whacking great hardback that will sell gangs. I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming mm -hmm. somebody somewhere had little rethink about the economic margins involved, or maybe it's just that my editors are fucking mentioned decided that we need to finish the story. I wouldn't believe any of those. <laughs> anyway, shut up, Cy. <laughs> so, you know, I'm relatively new to to Constantine, and Nick Nick intro Nick introduced me to uh, Cy Spencer's run, uh, oh. which I absolutely loved. And then, you know, boom, you make the make the jump, you know, to your run, which which I absolutely love. And thinking about Constantine, you know, as a character, it, one of the things that Nick and I love about you know doing doing our podcast, doing the show, and talking with everyone, it's it's really our love for for indie comics right like mm -hmm. yeah we love marvel we love the big budget movies you know dc batman all that stuff but it's really the, the 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 indie the indie stories that give you such depth such great character such such grittiness and to me constantine is is the type of character that epitomizes what indie comics should be about because you can you have this character who like you said earlier he's 
he's he's not really a good guy, right? He's not a hero, right? He's a he's a bit of a shitbag, but he's an awesome shitbag who occasionally will do things for the right reasons. And I love that. I, I love a flawed character. Uh, like like your 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 classic, you know, stereotypical flawed detective, right? Who drinks too much, smokes too much, you know, sleeps with the wrong women, but is able to solve the case at the end of the day. What is it about Constantine? What is what is his you know character flaw or whatever that you sort of grabbed onto and said, This is why I love this character, this is why I want to write him? Uh, I think there is almost nothing in storytelling quite as compelling as a character who is flawed but knows they're flawed. So the way I have always characterized mm. John is that he's a bastard who knows he's a bastard yeah. but can't quite help being a bastard anyway and will always revert to it and feels guilty about it sometimes and tries his hardest sometimes not to be, but he's a bastard. It's died into his wool. He can't not be. So that's a really interesting paradigm to play with. That's a, a fun clockwork toy to wind up and set free. Um, yeah, I think that's that's all there is to it. Like, there's a there's definitely something about um, self awareness that speaks to to one's ability to be a force for good or a force for change in the world. And again, I come back to this sort of homespun bullshit theory to do with the sort of American mythology versus the British mythology, like the, the British national character is somebody who was raised knowing that their nation used to be important, but really isn't anymore. And yet at the same time, we have the sort of um, governmental welfare state, which I celebrate, you know, if, mm -hmm. if you're living in my country and you break yourself physically or you're mentally broken or something goes wrong in your life sooner or later somebody will come and scrape you up and help get you back on your feet for free now i think that's miraculous and wonderful and to be celebrated and it's being dreadfully eroded at the moment but it it sort of creates a national characteristic a sort of a mindset that is somewhere between um sort of bloody-minded cynicism and fatalism but also a sort of odd unsentimental hopefulness and, and i guess that's that's mm. john like i was talking to to a mate about this the other day if there's a recurring motif thematically i mean in my stories it's about unsentimental people eventually discovering that there is something worth living for there is something that has meaning in their lives and John's been round the bush so many fucking times. He's sort of done that and he's not done it and he's done it again. So it's, it's difficult to extract new meaning from that. But we were quite fortunate because the threads we've inherited from the run that Aaron and I did all those years ago are still in play. We've got a question about John potentially having a son who is part of his little group. Uh, we've got like this whole new story takes place in America. So there's a lot of this sort of conversation that you and I are having now. It's it's all about um, converting that into an interesting road trip mentality, essentially, where John is encountering all these spooky American things and cryptids and ideas and mythologies and sort of interrogating them and comparing them to his own reality, his own, his own kind of cultural background, and just seeing what sparks fly. Um, so that's the sort of the driving tone of the story. 
doesn't really answer your question. I'm aware of that, but I, I guess it's, it's just, <laughs> welcome back, Sai. Shut the fuck up. Uh, it's something to do with that painful self-recognition that a flawed character can spend their entire lives trying to correct, never quite managing to. And that's tragic, but it's also compelling yeah. because you're reading it and you're thinking, come on, John, just this once. Do the right <laughs> Yeah. Do it for them, not for yourself. And you can see him thinking about it, and you can see him thinking, eh, or, <laughs> or, <laughs> or better best, yet. Yeah, and, and the best stories, the best Hellblazer stories, are the ones where he takes a third route that you haven't considered, and it's not selfish, it's not selfless. It's usually a sort of a strange, twisted combination of the two, which is generally serving the greater good will absolutely throw some unlucky fuckers under the bus. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. See, and that to me is when you talk about uh, Constantine, it's like he, he is at his best as a character when no one is safe around him. Anybody on his team could go in an instant, just like anybody who's opposite of him, because at the end he needs to, he's worrying about himself and you know, you, and you're putting him in that spot quite a bit. And it, it is funny too. Like when you can get him to be like, Oh come on, do the do the right thing one time, and it's like yeah maybe, and then it's like I'm like oh okay he's gonna do the right thing okay interesting nope nope sorry <laughs> I changed my mind. That's, I, that's what's, what he... what's really fun about this new arc is that there are about three or four different sort of motivating stakes behind his every action, and without wishing to spoil them all, one of them is that. Uh, this kid who he thinks is his son actually turns out to be his son. I'm not gonna not gonna worry about spoiling that. It's his son. It's right. son from a, a sort of forgotten one night stand liaison he had long ago who has accidentally sort of stumbled into his life. And at the end of the last arc, Aaron and I did John's decisions, manipulative behavior caused this kid to essentially damn himself. For mm. for story reasons, he had to kill somebody who was innocent. So one of the things that's on John's mind as this new arc begins is my son is damned as a result of the things I made him do. I probably have some duty to try and fix that. And, and that's sort of the one that he leads with. Everything he does, he's like, oh, yeah, no, I've got this awful burden that I have to, to redeem and I'm going to try and save him. But almost immediately we learn there's actually a whole ton of other quite more selfish reasons that he sort of go hand in hand with that. Yeah. And before very long, he's uh, encountering uh, a figure from, from other stories. We'll come to this, I'm sure, who sort of mm -hmm. sets him on a, a kind of quest, if you like, which is the same quest. It's all about the same ultimate goals, but it's just sort of adding the stakes every step. So, yeah, a, a classic John Constantine stuff where... He's doing the thing that you sort of want him to do, but it's probably not for the reason you, you expected. Yeah, I'm with that too. What I'm one of the things I was most curious about asking you about coming into this conversation was about your process of mm -hmm. writing, of writing John Constantine, because, like I said, like he's at his best 
when he's a piece of shit and you really can't trust anybody. He's not saving the world like, you know, a, even a Batman or a Superman or whoever else does. Like, he's no, if he's doing it, it's because it kind of worked out best for him in the end. It was the best mm -hmm. option for his own ass. And I would think, I, I know, like, you're going through a lot of stuff right now. And honestly, like, all the, like, the, you know, you talking yourself and everything. Like, I'm like, he's in the headspace right now that it makes sense that he's writing constantly. Like, he's in a, I don't want you to be in a negative headspace side, but at the same time, it probably <laughs> plays that. well to this character as opposed to writing <laughs> I think it's a different process yeah it's uh, it's a lot and I, I make no bones about this the uh, the process of sitting down to write 28 pages of Hellblazer is considerably more onerous and effort and frankly painful than writing 28 pages of something else anything else it's just mm -hmm. hard and it's interesting, like you guys were talking earlier about indie comics and stuff. And, and even though I would always characterize in my sort of mental landscape, things like Hellblazer is essentially being worked for hire. You know, I'm writing somebody else's character. You can't write a character like John. You definitely can't write a character like John in the, the sort of vertigo-ish mental landscape, like mm -hmm. uh, black, black label as it's called these days. Right. Unless you approach it with a creator-owned attitude you have to care so deeply about this character and the characters around him and the stories that you're telling there has to be a sort of thematic truth that surrounds it all otherwise it shows you're faking it and it shows you're you're trying very hard to sort of borrow voices to borrow things of concern and value and it, it just never quite works a little bit more nuanced and grown up like that whereas you know if somebody comes to me and says hey sorry do you want to write batman i'll be like <laughs> I'll, I'll spend a few days thinking about a batman story that really matters to me but it's not it's not a character that has the same um potency the same capacity for being radical and surprising and so it would be a, a, a an exercise in telling a simple story rather than an exercise in telling a complicated story and, and mm. you know frankly i find simple harder sometimes than complicated <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah it's a lot um especially at this time when like you listed all those goddamn projects at the beginning of this you know, it's, been, <laughs> it's been like eight months of genuine hell just damn to, them all he would say <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the reason, like, I mean, Dan Moore was was almost entirely a sort of reaction to not having John in my head anymore, and then John came crawling back. He has a way about doing that, huh? Yeah, no, he's a sneaky fucker. So, <laughs> yeah, it's been a lot, and I'm I'm pretty dog tired, I have to say. But but I'm winding down. So at the moment on my slate, it's just John and the Flash, and those are two you would think extremely different books, but actually they sort of share, in my conception anyway, they share some slightly invisible thematic gristle in terms of people who are trying to do one thing with great focus, but are being pulled in multiple directions. Mm. That's that's the sort of the connective gristle. And yes, there is a biographical element in there because <laughs> I'm a dad and a writer and a husband and blah 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 and you do you do sort of feel like you're at great risk of spreading yourself too thin sometimes mm -hmm. so it's a real joy to be condensing back down to just one or two titles so speaking of all those characters right we got we got spider-man we have flash we've got we got john we have ellie 
you know, and, and then pantheon of, of books that you've written and, and, and characters, you know, that you, you've written, you know, yeah. where would Constantine sort of fit, you know, in that, you know, in that hierarchy? Is he, is he your favorite one to write? Is, you know, is it going to be something like, well, I enjoy writing them all for different reasons. Like how would you sort of rank some of those characters? I mean, it's a good question. I, I wish that I was able to tell you I had a, like a, you know, top five and it, it's, it doesn't, for me, at least it doesn't quite work like that simply because and I'm aware that this probably means I'm doing something wrong because this, this sounds like an awful lot of emotional hard work. But when I sit down to write anything, I have to have persuaded myself that it's the best thing I'm ever going to write and the most important thing I'm ever going to write. Whether it's a fucking one shot by some underwear wearing superhero that I've never heard of before or an issue of, you know, a creator owned comic that I think will resound throughout the ages I, it's, you've sort of got to approach it all or i've got to approach it all with the same mentality um like i say that's probably a problem because there are clearly very talented writers who can just sort of toss off the sort of light enjoyable stuff that has always eluded me and do very well out of it and they can probably do it much faster than i do as well but um i don't know of any other way than to to sort of be looking for a good reason to tell a particular story. If there's no reason to tell the story, then why the fuck am I bothering? Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's totally fair. And yeah. I, I, well, now I'm going to bring up a kind of off the wall, but still very much related thing to what Joe just asked. So obviously you've got all these different characters that you're wor you've worked on recently and obviously over the years, but the two that I have, I've been drawn to the most, at least most recently that you've worked with have been Nightcrawler, who a character that I love. And obviously Constantine, a character that I love. And mm -hmm. obviously you're working with Nightcrawler over on uncanny Spider-Man um, have a few questions maybe later, but as I said before, yeah, there's the pop. Um, but I, I can't help, but wonder, you know, over the years, people have been clamoring for another Marvel DC crossover. <laughs> and I look at those two, I see those two. And I'm not, I'm not even asking for a pitch or anything like that. Cause <laughs> But I'm curious if those two just sat down. Hellcrawler. Hellcrawler. There you go. I think that's a, little, the, a little buddy cop story, you know. That, that <laughs> would be. Yeah. I, I think Hellcrawler was a name that you had in uh, in yeah. Uncanny Spider-Man. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm curious if those two met for the first time, had an idea of who each other was, and sat down for coffee. How do you envision? that conversation going because i feel like that would tell a lot if you were getting given the opportunity to write the story how you would approach that story i think they would both think the other one mentally unwell almost immediately <laughs> uh, i think john would take like let's assume for a moment that, that there's no question marks about there's a blue guy with a tail sitting next to me let's uh, <laughs> you know, ignore the whole visual element for a moment i think john would find kurt unbearably upbeat and uh earnest and far too sort of um far too good let's let's put it in simple terms john isn't very good around people who are unabashedly good people mm -hmm. i think you would find him extremely annoying i think he would probably feel very uncomfortable in his company i think kurt would probably think john is just a a, a an unpleasant human being and and sort of sucking all the hope and joy out of any occasion but kurt being kurt he wouldn't stop 
trying to reach some sort of equanimity moment where where they're on a, a level of sort of emotional connection he'd probably keep poking and poking and poking to see if he can get to the core of who john constantine is which would just make john more and more angry and more and more fucked off um yeah i mean it's it's a it's a really great recipe for a for a buddy movie isn't it because uh one yeah of just so one of them's like a a labrador puppy and the other one's like a sort of three-legged bulldog who's just waiting to be put down and wants to be left alone <laughs> oh, oh, can we go and play visible oh, fuck off leave me alone because i'm just picturing in my head the uh the will ferrell mark Wahlberg vehicle the other guys was, right yeah, <laughs> and, and they've got to like solve some underworld like crime or something that's going on and they just fucking hate each other <laughs> Oh man, print that! It's print, you're printing money with that idea. The real question for me, after hearing all this side, because that that, con that conversation all checks out, who would snap first? Because I feel like Constantine would start poking and poking at some of the questionable stuff the mutants have done on Krakoa recently, and I just don't know. Like you know, obviously Nightcrawler is kind of going through a lot recently. Yeah. Um, curious, because you would think the odds-on favorite would be Constantine if someone's going to snap between the two of them. Yeah, no, like the okay, so the dumb. The dumb Hollywood shit version of this is they they encounter each other. John is immediately annoyed by how upbeat Kurt is. <laughs> Decides that he's gonna just enjoy taking this poor fucker down a peg or two, and just goes heavy into the Catholicism, the the hypocrisy, the Krakoa of it all. Poke, 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 cut, cut, cut until Kurt just can't take it anymore and fucks off. But then the the third act moment would be the moment that John's on his own and has no use and no help. And Kurt comes back. And shows of course. Him. Yes. This is why we need to write the comic first. So that way you can make it a lot more than just that, but that would work yeah. too. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I mean, and funnily enough, like to, to sort of go back to the soundbite from before, if you, if you have a character who is totally unsentimental and a character who peddles in sentiment, then that's a wonderful recipe and to have the unsentimental character struggle and wrestle and sacrifice all the way through and to then eventually find some measure of sentiment at the hands of the other character that's that's a sort of classic yeah. american american story right there you know there was hope after all you know, yeah all right the tears of a child all of that <laughs> shift just a little bit because you know one of the things that I, I again i love about constantine is you know again he's gritty right and and and, and i love these these gritty sort of stories we, we get a lot of those over at you know awa and, and their storytelling and, and their characters and you know the first two volumes of hellblazer you know we've got a couple of different artists and so you've got a, a couple of wonderfully talented artists you know in each volume and it seems as though Aaron Campbell has been the one that's been, you know, you know, is going to be in all three volumes so far, even though you've had a couple of different other artists in there. Is there something about his style that pairs well with your storytelling that, you know, he sort of keeps coming back, you know, into the fold and, and being a part of these uh, stories? Yeah, I think he's just totally, he's perfect. And, you know, let's, let's not fit around the bush. He and I are good friends. He's a huge Hellblazer fan. He gets John. 
you're able to bounce story ideas around in a way that I wouldn't with many other artists, which is very useful. Um, he understands the language of cinematographic storytelling in a way that an awful lot of comic book artists don't. Like, there's just to give you one example, there's a thing in cinematography called crossing the line. You're never supposed to cross the line. So you have two characters talking. They have an eye line between them. You should never position your camera in such a way that jumping from one shot to another has crossed the eye line between them. Right, the 180 rule, right? Yeah. So yeah. a character who appears on the left of the mm -hmm. camera, whether they're facing towards or away from the viewer, will always be on the left and vice versa. Now, an awful lot of comic book artists won't even try to do that. There'll be panels where you've got this guy walking this way and this one walking the other way, and then the next panel, they've literally flipped and they're walking in two different directions because the cameras. And you can get away with it a little more in comics than you can in uh, movies and on screen, if only because this is where it all gets a bit formalist and wanky. The the sort of the magic at the heart of comics is that space equals time. You're constantly dicking around with the relationship between space and time. So if you have to position your balloons, your dialogue, your your audible elements in such a way that the reader's eye gets them in the right order, it becomes extremely difficult to do that at the same time as maintaining the don't cross the line rule. So yes, this is all exceptionally boring and formalist. And I apologize. But all of which is to say that that's the sort of thing Aaron thinks about deeply, and it does make for a far more rewarding storytelling experience because it's totally unconscious. The reader doesn't know that they're experiencing this. It just all flows so much better. And in a, a story that can get very dense, like Hellblazer can, but can also dip into moments of horror or levity or whatever it is, you need that level of... Um, storytelling skill hmm. to permit you to, to flex around a lot so there are really like i've worked with a lot of really great artists and one or two truly abysmal artists and and right now as long as they will have me i will always be trying to work with aaron and i will always be trying to work with matthias because we just gel very very hmm. well um in two very different ways like the styles couldn't be more different it was kind of fun to have matthias doing some hellblazer in the first arc because it it does highlight the um, flexibility of the character. You can occasionally do sort of comedy mm -hmm. with that character. Or with a very odd character that he was paired with, too, with that, the man bun guy. Yeah. Yes, the uh, Tommy Willow tree. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Came to the sticky end at the end of it all. Yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, God. When I, when I saw when I, when I met that character, I was like, oh, he's fucked. Yeah, no, he's not, not going to last long. Poor old Tommy. Sticky, sticky's one way to put his head. <laughs> yeah, I, you know what? Like to your previous point, yeah, there's a lot of Kurt Wagner in Tommy Willow Tree because he was huh. just so relentlessly good. He was just trying so hard to carry yeah. the burdens of everybody around him, and he got absolutely fucked because he got, <laughs> he messed around with John. And if you start pallying up to John, and you're anything other than a miserable old bugger, you are not going to last very long at all. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so Aaron is doing, in inverted commas, all of these nine issues. Um, nice. I think in practice, there's actually going to be one issue that's a little bit more fun than that and sort of messes around formalist experimental style. But in essence, it is Aaron and me for the long haul. Nice. Love that. Okay. And and then it's you and Constantine, and then we got a couple other characters that get thrown into the mixer that we meet in this first issue, and they're both alluded to on the cover in the Sandman and Swamp Thing. Obviously, um, you know, been around Constantine in varying capacities 
over the years. And I'm curious, I'm sure it's exciting to be utilizing both of these in some capacity, but is there one over the other that you're particularly excited to get to tell a story with Constantine alongside? Um, I think in as much as they, they both feature alongside John, like, uh, you know, I can imagine myself telling quite a good Swamp Thing story, but I think it would be because I've got ideas about what that character represents, what they are in the world, the sort of ideas, the big concepts behind them, rather than because I'm immediately drawn to his character, mm-hmm. by which I mean the bundle of emotions and thoughts and beliefs and things that he represents. I don't know that I have a great sense of that. I feel like he's a sort of walking, talking projection of life, which is a powerful archetype to, to write with. And I'm, I'm sort of quite um, inspired by the chance to do so. But putting that alongside John, you've got immediately a great fall guy and a, a great bouncy guy. You know, you've got one of these people who's quite slow and methodical and purple in the way he talks and he chooses his words with great care and then you've got john just going shut the fuck up can we get on with it and and that's great that's immediate drama and it's it's sort of the same with with dream we don't so dream makes a really big appearance at the beginning in this first issue and then a couple of times throughout the middle and then again at the end it all sort of wraps up together he's sort of our this is a bad analogy, but he's sort of our dungeon master, you know, from the old mm. cartoon who pops up and goes, the way forward is the way back. And then, you know, you're <laughs> the rest of it. Uh, which drives John mad. He hates that whimsical shit. Like, if John was a real person, he would not read Neil Gaiman books because they're far too whimsical and dreamlike <laughs> and, and uh, Wizard of Ozzy. And, and that's just not his vibe at all, which is funny because Neil has written some of the best <laughs> Hellblazer <laughs> stories, which just goes to show what an amazing life he is. Yeah. So there's a lot of fun uh, juxtapositions to be had with these three characters. So basically, we well, uh, the important thing to stress is that you don't need to have read mine and Aaron's prior run. You don't need to have read Saga of the Swamp Thing. You don't need to have read Sandman. But if you have, there are some really great connective moments of gristle in this new arc because we we realized that there are some big unanswered questions in sandman and in saga of the swamp thing so to give you an example um in the first arc of sandman there's that memorable issue where dream is looking for his lost pouch of sand it's gone missing and he goes to john constantine because he thinks john has it Mm-hmm. Uh, in the in the TV show, this is the Johanna Constantine episode, so it all works. Um, discovers that John had it once, bought it in a garage sale in San Diego long ago, was never able to get the strings of the pouch of sand open, and so it's just been sitting in his lockup for years. But it's not there anymore. And it turns out that one of John's ex-girlfriends has got this pouch, and she's sort of been using the sand as a sort of drug. She's addicted to its powers. Um, She's been using it to get over the pain of the breakup that she had with John. It's all quintessentially John-ish. He's caused all this pain and awkwardness, and it's just festering and getting worse and worse. And it ends with Dream showing up and essentially putting her out of her misery, reclaiming his bag of sand, and off he goes. Now, the thing that always bugged me about that is that if 
John's ex-girlfriend, who is not a magician, not a trained occultist, had nothing of his except this pouch of sand and maybe some of his old notebooks, but she could open the bag of sand enough to be able to get addicted to the contents, then why the fuck couldn't John get the bag of sand open? Huh. And the answer is he could. He lied. He told a big fat stinking fib. <laughs> and because Dream was at this point in the story so very fucked up and vulnerable, he didn't sure. realize he let it go. So into our new story, Dream comes bundering along and he's like, I know you lied to me. And guess what? There's a bunch of that sand that's still out there somewhere and you're going to find it for me or it's going to go hard for you. So that's the sort of impetus at the beginning of our story. And then it just gets more complicated and drags in more elements and John being John, he's like, well, when I'm fucked and I don't really know what's going on, who do I go and bother uh, <laughs> answer being Swamp Thing? So that's where he sort of heads straight away to the, the Louisiana Bayou. And what he discovers there is not at all what he expected. Um, the last page of the first issue is a version of Swamp Thing that I don't think anybody's ever <laughs> expected to see before, which Aaron really enjoyed drawing. Uh, you guys have read this, right? So you know what yes. I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're not going to say but it's that's that's the sort of the the kickoff of it all um and later on we discover what john did with that sand all those years ago when he cracked it open so there's an awful lot of sort of mining the the classics to give this new story a little bit of fun back matter but but again none of it's dreadfully important you can just read this story and it's it's a really fun story and it's okay. so you've rogued one and you fixed the loophole with the no-win conversation isn't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah but it's it um it, it with the timing of the sandman show not being too long ago and obviously it's i mean whenever it comes back but it makes sense that they that that's all um, the, the Sandman stuff in Dream is it's all, it's all a little extra relevant now. So it's yeah, if you've only watched that show, then you kind of have an idea. Like okay, that happened in the comics, and it was uh, it was Constantine, not his relative, that this happened with. And easy enough to figure all that. What I can't get over now, Sai, is you bring up Gaiman um, a couple times, and then you're talking about how like if you know Constantine would not would not read Gaiman if he was a real person, and then I can't help think about Good Omens, and I'm thinking. Like, have you ever thought about who you'd like to see play Constantine? Because I, I, obviously we've seen different people. Like, you know, Keanu was fun, but Keanu's not really the, you know, whatever. We're just going to leave it. I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, but like I see David Tennant as Crowley and I'm like, oh man, that's like, that has, that, that could be, that would be spot on. He'd do a great job. I mean, uh, it's funny there's a question of, of accent as well. So you need mm. somebody you can do a good so, for instance, you know, at the very beginning of all this, before we hit record, we started talking about how you pronounce the guy. You know, a lot of people would say Constantine. I think it's Constantine. What's a bit funny about that is if you accept that he was born in Liverpool, then he would say Constantine. That's, that's how that would be pronounced. And yet Ooh. it is, I think, a matter of canon that he pronounces it Constantine. And so in the, the arc I did before... I made the point that he's one of those people who understands the importance of always being a stranger. So wherever he goes, he will sound a little bit like the people around him, but also a little bit different, just so that they're able to lower their guard. But he's like us, and then occasionally to remind them that actually he's not like them at all. <laughs> um, which, P.S., is an experience that most Brits have every time they visit America, because it's like one of those 
these people have a similar culture to us, similar morality, similar worldview, and then every now and then you'll see something or hear something that makes you go, holy fuck, (laughs) this isn't what I thought it was at all. Um, it happens to us in, a, in our own country. <laughs> yeah, so um, so there's a lot of that. And, and I think there's something quite valuable in, in that kind of level of thought, always thinking about who this character is or isn't. To your question about casting, I honestly don't know. And I'll get you one better. I try very hard not to know. Hmm. Because if I have a particular face in mind and then an artist draws it differently, I get all dysregulated. Hmm. It's very hard to sort of inhabit that character. Um, part of the magic of comics is that you can have these like in magic there's a thing called an egregore an egregore is it's a bit like a tulpa so a tulpa is a thought form that is given solidity an egregore is like a communal version of that it's something that enough people get together and believe really hard in something then it takes a shape it takes a form and what's beautiful about an egregore is that everybody in that group will have a different idea of what it looks like. And so it looks to them exactly like they would expect it to look like. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. when I see John, it doesn't matter how the artist has drawn his face, if they've drawn him like fucking Chris Evans or Sting or whoever, I'll still mm-hmm. see that as my Constantine because that's just right. the way that the magic of the unconscious works. Um, there was an actor, and I shouldn't have even begun this line because I can't remember the fucker's name. Um, he's probably too old now. He was in a show called Hustle many years ago. And he plays this sort of cheeky, blonde, cockney guy. Um, he was also, now that I think about it, in um, the adaptation of Mr. Strange, no, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Oh, yes. Um, where he oh, played, uh, I think I know what you're talking about. He played the, the man in the, the green jacket. Mark Warren is his name. Yes, Mark Warren, okay. And he's brilliant. And I think he's probably a bit old now. He's 56, so that's about right. But no, he'd, he'd be, uh, if I had to choose somebody, it would be him. Okay. Nice. So, you know what? Uh, I'm looking at his, his Wikipedia right now, and he's from Northampton as well, which is just so Alan Moore that it's not true. So this is just <laughs> Uh, so I'm often known as the fisherman on this program side because mm-hmm. I, I try to extract, I try to pull, you know, fish out some some oh, information. Your wisdom, go for it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so you told us that we're getting nine issues yep. of this upcoming story arc uh, with Constantine. Are there plans? Do you have more stories in, in mind to beyond this? Or is this sort of like, okay, our editors have, have, have thrown us a bone. They've given us this last opportunity to tell, you know, Constantine, and that'll be it. Mm. Uh, uh, fantastic question. I, I wish I had a, a solid answer for you. Um, making it up on the spot, because you have hooked me with your with your cunning rod. Now, <laughs> and, and I must respond, lol. Uh, the, the funny thing, okay, so this new arc, even though each issue sort of stands alone, that's the beauty of Hellblazer. You want to create these little modular stories that have some sort of beginnings and middles and ends. It is nonetheless, in its macro form, a road trip. It starts on the East Coast near Florida, it ends on the West Coast near Los Angeles, and there's a series of tales that cross America on the way through for reasons. Um, in that respect it's not like when i think of hellblazer the sort of monthly comic the vertigo comic that came out for what was it 300 issues or something like that in a long time there's something quite 
satisfying about the sort of London-based status quo, monster of the week, X-Files, the investigation, what's John going to be doing this week? Now, if you said to me, Sai, could you write 100 issues of Hellblazer with John just sort of bimbling around being John? The answer is yes, and I would love every minute of it, and I could do that for as long as I chose. Hmm. But that's not what this is right now. This is more directed than that. It's more of a sort of formative story, like to, to lean into the awful X-Files metaphor. Uh, you know, there's the difference between the sort of Monster of the Week episodes and the Cancer Man episodes, which everybody sort of rolled their eyes at. Because, oh, it's more actual fucking stuff that matters. Oh, alien shit. Well, uh, that notwithstanding, this arc is the stuff that matters. It's the, it's the formative stuff that speaks to who John is, where he comes from, his past, and ultimately where he's going or not going. So in that respect, it's not the sort of story where I could say, hey, and from that, I could just pivot into telling Hellblazer stories forever, because that's that's just not on the cards. But give me the opportunity to do that, and I would cheerfully do that, yes. So it's um, so good to know that if DC's like, hey, let's just do more, you got you you full reign, go ahead and go for it. Um, I, I'm totally, I, I'm, I'm again... We are so excited to get more Constantine. The first issue of it was outstanding. Again, it's dead in America. Um, mm -hmm. and it's nine issues, everybody. The first issue is coming out on January 16th. And before we let you go, Sai, we did want to ask you a little bit about Damn Them All, if we could sneak a few questions mm -hmm. in. Maybe uncanny, but we'll see. With Damn Them All, like that, when that got announced, I could not have picked that thing up fast <laughs> enough. If you're a Constantine fan, or I was saying, I'd say Constantine usually for being honest, <laughs> uh, you need to check this series out. And that's not because I look at it and say, these are the, like, this is the female version of Constantine. That's not it at all. And I'm curious, like, you know, the differences are there as you, as you start to read it and, and it's very clear to figure it out um, as you go along. But for you, the idea of Ellie Hawthorne. I know you kind of alluded to before, this felt like a reaction to mm -hmm. Constantine, your run ending more, sooner than it should have. But did that idea come to, for her come to you a lot sooner? I mean, it's a great question. Um, so her, um, where to begin? Damn them all, it basically begins with a character who is not dissimilar to John Constantine dying. No spoilers, unless you're really annoyed about spoilers on page one of your comic. But that's, that's pretty much how <laughs> they it came is. out, what, two years ago or a year yeah, ago? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody will write to me and say, how can you fucking spoil that? Anyway, um, <laughs> that's how it is. And then from there, the story is about what happens next. Um, as a result of this character's death, the 72 evil spirits of the Arscoesia, the Art of Summoning, which is like a medieval manuscript one of those grimoires written about demonology. The 72 evil spirits of the underworld are released into into London. And that's kind of the starting point. And this dead character's niece, a woman called Ellie Hawthorne, is required for reasons to go and do something about it. Now, originally, way before I even wrote Hellblazer, I had in my ideas file this stupid idea, because I've always been very interested in like, medieval grimoires. There's a sentence you never expect to have to say. I've always been very interested in medieval grimoires. Sounds like such a pompous fucking thing to say, but I have. I have. I've got. Quite you're a... turning into Constantine, by the way, the yeah, amount of times you're insulting yourself. He's not really a grimoire guy. He's probably got them all on his shelf, but he's probably wiped his ass on them. No, I'm talking about the self deprecating <laughs> shit that oh, you're. That, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that part, yeah, very clearly. Yeah, there's so many fishing hooks out today. Fuck 
<laughs> so, like, I, I've got all those manuscripts, and I've always been interested in the sort of codification of demons and the way that they're written about reminded me long ago of the way that especially kids but these days adults too talk about pokemon like they've all got their own superpowers and they all look a bit different and they've all got their own symbols and they all do different things and i had this dumb idea that wouldn't it be funny if there was like a pokemon version of the 72 devils from the Arsco show where like kids are like gotta catch them all and it's essentially yeah. <laughs> and that's like a fun idea that would last for maybe two issues before people were like okay i get it time to, time to move on but what happened was i did hellblazer i was told it had to end we wrapped it up we felt pretty proud of ourselves for wrapping it up and, and we're like we were okay to step away we weren't like blubbering infants but we were still pretty annoyed and that rage went back and attached itself to this old idea and i realized that the really interesting part wasn't the sort of codification pokemon-esque stuff it's that if demons were available people would misuse them and so ultimately the demons aren't the bad force at all it's the fact that if you have a new resource people who are greedy and want power and manipulate any new resource to their own ends will absolutely abuse and exploit that new commodity. So it's the commoditization of the occult. Immediately, that's quite a different sort of setup from Hellblazer. It sort of speaks the same language. It's in the same sort of crimey, London-y, occulty axis, but it's far more grindhousey and violent, and it speaks to a specific set of things in a specific closed environment to the extent for so this is all drawn by charlie adlard who is spectacular and wonderful but the thing he is spectacular and wonderful at is drawing people being people and so as soon as i'm like hey can we have a giant thing with a million demons erupting from this? he's like no 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 let's do a pub we'll have it in a pub and that's that's the sort of the the level of um button down realism that keeps a story like damn them all with its feet on the ground and it doesn't disappear into flights of fancy and psychedelic strangeness so that's what that is it's from the same school as hellblazer but it's quite a different beast and that was and is very satisfying because it, it sort of allowed me to exercise the same horror vernacular to sort of to toy with the same sorts of tones and beats but, but in a very different voice in a very different way um so yeah, it was it was partly a reaction and partly a sort of uh, what if you know what if John Constantine died? Who would pick up the pieces? So there's mm. there's enough of that in there that it's definitely if you like Hellblazer, you'll you'll enjoy Damn Them All. But it it was never exactly one for one. It was never like this is a story about Hellblazer. It wasn't, for instance, a, a Hellblazer idea that I never got a chance to play with. Gotcha. So you you know because you, you talked earlier about just how well um, um, Aaron Campbell just you know, fits the tone of, mm -hmm. of what you're trying to accomplish with, with Constantine. And you just mentioned Charlie Adlard. So how did you come to work with Charlie and, 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 and find, you know, get that same sort of relationship because, you know, damn them all and Constantine, they, they both have a very similar vibe to them, both writing style and, you know, um, artistically. Mm -hmm. uh, simple answer. Charlie and I hang out at conventions and get drunk <laughs> together and have always wanted to work together. And then uh, Walking Dead, uh, I won't, I won't 
assume you don't know that whole saga. You know, he eventually <laughs> eventually came to the end of that extreme. I don't know if you heard of it. It's about zombies, apparently. I don't know. Some, some <laughs> running I heard zombies. they're in. I heard they're in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> apparently it's quite a big deal at the moment. But um, that came to its natural conclusion, and Charlie reached out and was like, hey, you got anything going that would be fun for us to collaborate on? And it just happened at that moment that I had done more on files. So it sort of rolled from there. And as I say, it was a, a perfect example of when, like, if it had been any other artist, the the stakes the the natural inclination of the the story arc would have been quite different it would have slowly bubbled into this sort of apocalyptic thing that overran the whole world but that's not charlie's thing and he's quite right about that not being his thing so instead we've kept it quite contained and quite street level and that makes it i think a little bit stronger and more intense and more sort of intimate um but it's a great illustration of how an artist's style can sort of take the, the position of the pole star that guides you in the direction the story goes. So I, I have one more damn them all question, mm -hmm. Sai, and then we're just going to, and we'll do one quick uncanny uh, Spider-Man related thing. So with uh, simple, simple question, actually, who would you rather, why would you rather work alongside Ellie Hawthorne than Constantine if you were in a specific type of situation. I think uh, something for like the readers who haven't necessarily checked out Damn Them All, but are Constantine fans. Um, I think I'd probably prefer to hang around with Ellie just because we all know what happens to people who get stuck in John's orbit. And, and you know, there's a little bit of that in, in Damn Them All as well. Ellie's certainly one of those people who, who just sort of is bad news. And she's not above betraying and using people but she's also just far more straightforward. She doesn't dissimulate. She doesn't sort of beat around the bush. She'll just say, no, fuck off. Like the whole joke with her is that she carries a cursed hammer. Yeah. She's like, oh yeah, no, it's wrapped in the, the linen of a of a, an ancient mummy and it's been cursed by three different magics. And she just makes all this shit up and people are like, well, I don't believe in magic. And she's like, well, it's still a fucking hammer and she's gonna hit you in the face with it. And that's <laughs> That's Ellie, you know, she'd rather take the simple approach than beat around the bush with all the wanky stuff. Um, yeah, I wouldn't particularly relish being stuck in the, the wake of either one of them, to be brutally honest, but it would be fun to sit on the outlines of a bar and watch them both at it. Yeah, there you go. And, and then and then again, as we've alluded to a couple of times on the other, other end of the spectrum, we have Kurt Wagner, Nightcrawler, also now known as the Uncanny Spider-Man. And by the way, the, the what you did with the, the Spidey stands page, like that info page <laughs> in the first issue, particularly loved the, what is it, Devil Spider, where someone says it at the beginning, oh, yeah, 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 and then yeah. at the end, it's like, I can't believe no one said Devil Spider. Yeah. Pull up a little fucking bit. That was perfect. But my <laughs> one question that I wanted to, to end on this, because the uh x-men or blue x-men blue origins that you did or origins blue whatever the fuck um that was the, that was a big step into the relationship of mystique yep. and nightcrawler which is at the center of uncanny spider-man but why was now the time to delve into that for you um well big question bigger answer uh ever since i went into the x office and there's a whole ton of like backstory that this, this answer could go on for as long or as short as you want it to. But um, the <laughs> the X office, the X Slack, we all hang out on the Slack. It's the most collaborative 
version of comic book writing I've ever been part of. It's I've done some TV writers' rooms, and it's much more akin to that than it is to the sort of solitary hitting keys on a keyboard on your own, hating yourself mm. silently that most <laughs> comics are actually like. From the very beginning of my time in that Slack, it has been an occasional comment, an occasional conversation that comes up about, hey, you know, if we ever get the opportunity, that would be a really wonderful thing to address, to try and put right this strange thing like Claremont intended that these two would be Kurt's parents and uh, it, it sort of wasn't possible to do at the time and it all went down in interesting convoluted directions as a result of people needing to know everything about parenthood and all the rest of it. Wouldn't it be great if sometime the opportunity arose for us to change the record? And nobody particularly took possession of that opportunity simply because the various pieces were often moving around the board in different directions. Like there wasn't really a moment that that would have been right. And then after however many years of writing Nightcrawler as part of a team, doing the various sort of thoughtful, philosophical stuff that I was, I was given as a brief when I came into this room, you know, let's create a new religion, let's be responsible for sort of the the health of the culture of this stuff all stuff that i've enjoyed and and you know it's very on brand for me um but it, it does rather preclude one from doing solitary swashbuckly fun stuff and, and eventually we've come to uncanny spider-man which has its whole um conceit in which nightcrawler is on the run he's wanted for murder and his way of hiding out is to pull on a spider-man outfit and to just sort of swing around new york dicking around and having fun and Yes, he's absolutely displacing from the big chromatic stuff that he should be focusing on. And that's a big part of the story. But from my perspective, it allowed me to finally just do like some really good uh, swashbuckling stuff. Mm-hmm. But I see, yeah. we realized it's also the opportunity to bring Mystique in and have, for the yeah. first time in a very long time, a book that focuses on a, a much more limited number of characters, of which they are two. And we all went, hang on a minute, is this the moment? Can we do it? Can we do it? And we went and asked, and everybody was extremely supportive. And so, yeah, that's where that's where this one shot came from. And it, it sort of, for, for boring practical reasons, it had to be an annual, a one shot, because the, the, the rethinking, I hate to call it a retcon, because it isn't really, it's much more sort of... Um, much more nuanced than that. It's a little more clever about how it uses all the pieces than just sort of flipping the table and saying, fuck it, we don't believe that version anymore. Here's a new version. We, we didn't want to do that. But if we had made that part of the Uncanny Spider-Man arc, I mean, A, I didn't have enough fucking pages because I never have enough fucking pages. But B, <laughs> if, if you're a reader of these characters who loves Mystique and Destiny and wants to read their story but hasn't been reading Uncanny Spider-Man, that's immediately a a gateway that you have to walk through. We wanted it to feel like an artifact that anybody could pick up and enjoy and recognize its importance without necessarily needing all this uh, backstory, which, you know, a separate conversation for another time, but that's part of the problem of the success of the Krakow era is that the longer it goes on, the harder it becomes to dive straight into it. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's, that's so, why everybody just needs to bring in imps like you do, a little necrology. Exactly, an annoying little imp who can sit there and, I mean, that, and that's literally his job. His job is to say, it's okay. You don't need to know this stuff. It's all right. It'll all be okay. You, you can ignore that for the purposes of this story. Um, 
and that's yeah that's that's kind of it makes uh, sense that's that's pretty much the answer to the question I, I think we did a really good job um it seems to have gone down very i mean i've had of course i've had hate mail and death threats and people telling me i'm going to hell and all the rest Always. Of it. that's that's what you expect when you go into the ex office <laughs> so that's <laughs> cool. it means you're doing it right it means yeah. you're doing it right yeah right. exactly 100 percent. and you'll be right there alongside his azel who is uh He's such a fucking, you talk about another piece of shit character, Um, but that's a conversation for another day. Cy, thank you so much for uh, taking the time with chat with us. We can't wait to read the rest of your Hellblazer story. Um, Hopefully we can catch up with you again at some point down the line. It's been a great pleasure, guys. Thank you for having me again. Thank you very much. Nick's just like, I'm out. All right, we're done.